Welcome back and to episode 46. Sometimes I recall memories that I either forgot about until something spurs my old memory or that just didn't fit in the storyline. So I thought I would start with a couple of those stories this week. Now I'll also fully admit that if I already told parts of these stories, well, we'll just talk that up also to my bad memory. I do get feedback from some listeners to ask about more stories, and I hope you'll find these interesting and a bit entertaining as well. The first story is one taking you back to the farm. After all, that period is replete with good stories. One thing that was pretty amazing was in the spring and the goats would have their kids. Usually one offspring was born, although there were occasional multiple births. The whole barn would be abuzz when a goat was in labor. They sensed that the birth was coming. We would be there to help in case where there was a birth that would be breached because that was very difficult. Then we would be on standby to collect the colostrum, the first milk rich in nutrients, and get the kid on bottles because we didn't want them to nurse. By the time we had several kids born, we would be out there with buckets and buckets of bottles. There would be a large black rubber nipple on the bottles, and as the kids got bigger, we would actually slice the tops of the nipples in a cross-like fashion so the milk would flow faster because they were hungry. I think I mentioned that in the early spring, we would have some of the kids in the house in an area of the main room in the dining room. Like any newborn animal, a baby goat is very cute and quite cuddly. Since we had purebred goats, we also had to pull the goats that we were keeping or selling as purebred. You've seen pictures of goats with horns. Well, a purebred goat cannot have horns, so we would use a specially made tool that was hot and would basically prevent the goat from going horns, and that's called pulling. It was kind of wild, and indeed the poor little kids didn't like that, as I'm sure you can imagine. Another story that I remembered was one that is about friendship, or rather, when you have a friend that is truly a friend. When I lived in Hampton, in that first house, there was a day that there was a really odd smell, and I just couldn't figure out what it was or where it was coming from. Since this was my first house, I also really didn't know much about investigating these kinds of things, and I don't quite recall what year this was. It was a bit like the time at Nellis when I got my car stuck on the wash rack and called my boss, John Miller, who came to my rescue. Well, I called Tony Scarrett and asked him for his thoughts on who I should call. He said, oh no, I'll come over. And he came over pretty quickly and figured out that the smell was coming from under the house in the crawl space. Now, I'm not a fan of dark, dirty spaces, and you know I don't like getting dirty in the first place. He volunteered to check under the house. Ah, there it was. Hey, Tom, do you have a pair of barbecue tongs? Why, yes, why do you ask? Well, there's a dead something under the house. Oh, my God. (laughs) This isn't good. I got a giant trash bag and those barbecue tongs. He crawled under and pulled out a fairly large animal. It was pretty big. It was also quickly agreed on that we would toss the barbecue tongs in the bag as well with the unfortunate visitor. Now let me just say, 
That's a real friend. It smelled horrible. He helped me seal the vents so that other varmints couldn't get under the house. And for a while, I wouldn't even go near the crawl space entrances. You'd think that I would be a bit used to situations like this growing up on the farm. Well, alas, no. The last story was when I was at Osan. The base had a couple of tennis courts, as most do. And what I don't think I told you was that Ken Bryson was a semi-pro tennis player. It's a sport he loves, and today he is a volunteer with with youth tennis groups continuing his love for the sport. Well, when you know someone who has such talent, you want to learn from them, right? Well, apparently not if it's tennis. After several requests that might have been including some begging, I asked him to teach me some tennis. I knew a little bit about it, so why not? Well, he said that he couldn't. Why? Couldn't or wouldn't? Well, a rated tennis player, he couldn't play with someone with my lack of experience. Okay, well, finally I kept at it and he agreed to help me on the court. It took maybe two or three returns where I either completely missed the ball or hit the ball so hard it went outside the court. You see, my depth perception isn't the best, and secondly, my aim is even worse. So our game of tennis was short-lived. Like my golf tournament where I won the tournament that bore my name, I haven't played tennis since. In hindsight, I was actually sandbagging him, hoping he could put some money on the game after I pretended I couldn't play. I promised we'd finish up at William & Mary, and the graduation ceremony from William & Mary was a memorable experience. The event was held outside, and despite it being in late May, it was super hot. I mean, super hot. The former Chief Justice of the United States, Warren Burger, who was both a graduate and the current Chancellor his last year of William & Mary, was also in attendance, and that was really cool. The guest speaker, Bill Cosby. I remember his speech pretty well. In fact, he said, you don't remember what the speaker said and usually don't remember who it even was. It's hot out here, so I'm going to keep it short. He basically said congratulations and spoke for just a few minutes. The undergrads and those earning master's degrees were all conferred in two large groups. The only people that walked across the stage were those earning doctoral degrees, including lawyers or juris doctors. I don't know why, but after I was hooded and got to shake Mr. Cosby's hand, unlike the others, instead of just shaking my hand, he grabbed my hand, pulled me in, and gave me a big hug. Maybe it's because I was one of the few minorities, or maybe, well, who knows. Ken was taking photos at the ceremony, Ray up front, and he captured a set of three photos of this very memorable event. I then decided to get him to autograph them, and this was long before he had those legal problems, so I matted them together and sent them to his management company and asked him to sign them. Months, nothing. More, nothing. So I tried to call the offices. Surprisingly, I got through, and they passed me through to his home office. 
A woman answered the phone, and I explained what I was looking for, and she said, "Yes, I did see that. In fact, I think it's on his desk. I'll put it on top for you." It was in short order that they came back in the mail, autographed with him signing it, Bill Cosby, E.D.D. Temple. Persistence is one of my best, well, maybe one of my worst traits. This time, it worked out. You never have enough tickets for everyone you want to invite, and since I did most of my work while at Langley, and I was early in my tenure at the Pentagon, I had two work groups of people, friends, and of course, family. The plan was to drive down to Williamsburg for the event, and then drive back to the D.C. area for a reception. I found a restaurant in Northern Virginia that had a colonial motif, so that seemed fitting. Of course, on the way north, we hit really heavy traffic, and here I am stuck in traffic with my guests gathering at the restaurant. Although I did have the ones who attended the ceremony with me in the van that we rented. All in all, it was a great time. One of my office mates asked me to give her my degree so she could set up everything in advance. I already had the degree because remember I finished in December and only walked in May, so I already had the certificate. And at the ceremony, I got an empty folder. Anyway, they had it framed, and it was just beautiful. And that was my office gift, and very much appreciated. Lots of friends and family were there, and several women decided that they wanted to try on my tam. This was the culmination of my education, and I actually walked for my undergraduate, masters, and now William and Mary. One person has been to all of them. My cousin, so he should get the hundred percent participation award. From that point forward, Mr. Myers would call me the doctor or Dr. Tom. It was a culmination of a lot of hard work, and it was one of the highlights of my life. Like most families, our family had our share of loss, and although not a lot by this point, in 1993. Grandma Twilliger passed. After Grandpa passed in 1974, she moved to their Florida home and eventually moved to a retirement village in Jacksonville, Florida. I mentioned earlier that I had had the pleasure of visiting her sometimes with my sister, and they were always a wonderful visit. Grandma Twilliger was kind and a compassionate woman, and we were fortunate to have had her for so many years. I remember one visit when I went to the dining room for dinner. Grandma, who had a sweet tooth, said that unfortunately it was a night with coffee ice cream. Apparently, someone overbought coffee ice cream, and they've been having it for a long time. Well, I love coffee ice cream, so I was actually kind of happy. There were many tables with seniors at them, and I excused myself from my table with Grandma, and decided to do a little survey. I went from table to table where there was an empty chair that I could sit at, introduced myself as Grace Twilliger's grandson, and of course that delighted most of the residents. I asked each table just one question: In your lifetime, who was the best president? After gathering my data from several tables, I went back and explained to Grandma, who was an educator by trade, of course, what I did. What was the result? Overwhelmingly. FDR, 
When I say overwhelmingly, it was like 99% of the responses. The community where grandma was, was in one of those progressive places where there are different levels of support and care depending on the person's ability to be independent. As grandma fell ill, the family was notified that things certainly had taken a turn for the worse, yet it was difficult to get solid information on how things were really going. So I tried an idea. I called the hospital and introduced myself as Dr. Tom Twilliger, grandson of Grace Twilliger. Of course, they assumed I was a medical doctor. Now, this was before HIPAA, so her doctor came on the phone, and he freely said what was going on with her, and I scribbled what he said as fast as I could. After he told me of the diagnosis, he said, So, what do you think? Oh dear, I was going to be found out. By now, you know I'm a pretty quick thinker on my feet, and I said, Well, doctor, you're on the ground there and certainly have a far better sense of the status than I would. And that worked. Then I called my aunt, who was a nurse, and asked her what was going on. She said, There is little time left. It's close. I called my dad and shared that information. As one of Grandma's final wishes, she asked that there not be a funeral. Further, I knew that she was pretty ill, and I wanted to remember her as I knew her, which is why I didn't go down to Florida. Her sons, my dad, and his brother held a memorial service several months after she passed and felt that still honored her wishes while allowing the family to have a final farewell. It was since that time that our family has gone that route as well, and you'll learn a bit more about that further down the road. I truly loved Grandma Twilliger, and now with her passing, we just had one living grandparent. Being fortunate to have grandparents was truly a blessing, as I know that many have not had that opportunity. In 1993, another event unfolded in the military. President Clinton was in office, and that's when Don't Ask, Don't Tell came into being. Up until 1993, if you were identified either by declaration or by learning that you were gay by the military, you were discharged. It was considered a hindrance to good order and discipline. By this time, even though I was questioning in my enlisted career, I likely thought I was gay, and yet, because of the military, kept it in the back of my mind, frankly afraid to act on what was on my mind. On the air staff, by this time, you learned last week, I was in charge of the lodging program. Civil engineering was in charge of dormitory management, and that is the policy on how dorms are constructed, and there were several meetings on how this would impact in both in terms of those that were gay, and how they should be housed. Some of these meetings were like almost crisis management because of the personal perspectives in the room. Even for the time, a lot of the discussions were inappropriate based on both fear and stereotypes of what they thought a gay person would do if housed with other military members. What was even more ridiculous is that for lodging, rooms are not shared. From my personal perspective, I thought the whole thing was nonsense. 
Now, don't ask, don't tell wasn't like it is today, where gay service members can serve openly. What don't ask, don't tell meant was that as long as you didn't disclose your sexuality, you could remain in the service without fear of discharge, and at the same time, your leadership or chain of command couldn't ask you or question you about your sexuality. It wasn't long after the policy went into effect that I had an interview for my security clearance, and let me share how they handled this on the early side of this new policy. In the past, they would ask you, are you a homosexual? And in the past, I, like others, would lie and say no. Interestingly, there were still questions, and here's how they framed it. I was asked, what would you think was an immoral act? I knew what they were asking, so I would say, um, murdering someone. Oh yes, that's one. What else? How about robbing a bank? Okay, that's something else, but can you think of something perhaps more personal? Hmm, what about adultery? Well, that ended the conversation. It was a curious period. It would take quite some time for the policy to be fully understood, and there were certainly people who opposed the policy and felt compelled to express those views. If you've seen the movie Philadelphia with Tom Hanks, who is a gay attorney and his firm sues him because he has AIDS, in that movie there's a shot back in time when the partners were in the steam room making jokes inappropriately about gay men. Tom Hanks' character would smile along, and the storyline is that he was glad when he was in court later explaining why he didn't come out because of how homophobic they were. I think that's how I felt when I would be in some of the meetings where there were unfounded concerns that gay service members would prey on others in the dorms or the base hotels. And, of course, it was still 1993. Gay service members have served honorably this nation for decades well before Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Many thousands were discharged under less than honorable conditions because of their sexuality. Having, having lived through this period of time was a unique experience, and still, under Don't Ask, Don't Tell, you had to keep your sexuality under your hat. And so while the policy was a step forward, it still was a challenge that LGBT service members had to navigate very carefully through. I was surprised how quickly my plan for In Focus 2000 took root. While there were some naysayers, most of the stakeholders thought it was a great idea to move us forward. Buying sundries centrally instead of by base or major command would save a lot of money and standardize what was in the rooms. And standards of service for the travelers was going to be really important because most travelers don't travel only within their command. This was a very important aspect of what we wanted to do because service wasn't always consistent and too often only the front desk employees had customer service training. We needed to ensure all employees had customer service training because everyone interacts with the guests from housekeeping to maintenance to billing. 
to do this, I had to come up with I had to come up with a way to express the importance of the brand and how people looked at Air Force Logic. I realized there was one company that had customers that are excited about their brand. Sure, people like Starbucks. Some have allegiance to a certain airline, and some prefer a brand of toothpaste. Still, there was one brand that stood out above all others. This brand has customers and followers that are so enamored with the brand that they're willing to tattoo the logo on their bodies. The company? Have you guessed it? Yes, Harley Davidson. The CEO was known to say, "We don't sell motorcycles. We sell a lifestyle." That's what I wanted for our lodging organization. I wanted our customers to love what we did so much that they would be willing to ta- to tattoo our logo on their bodies. The next step was to help them understand what that service would look like, and so I took a page from the Disney playbook because they call their customers guests. Always, that's important. I will tell the story of how we need to treat every guest like it's the first time we see them. We need to make a first impression with each interaction. To do this, I would tell the story about two people dating. You know how it goes. On the first date, John makes sure his hair looks just right. He gets out his best pair of jeans. He washes the car. He waxes the car. He checks out the route to Sally's house and does a test drive to make sure there's an alternate in case there's something and like an emergency. And if your date goes well, on the second date, you know he puts on his jeans and he he doesn't need to wash the car, but he. Well, he already knows how to get there, and by the third or fourth date, you know, he, these jeans are old, but it's okay, and I don't need to wash the car, and if I'm a little late, she's always late also, and John no longer was trying to impress Sally, and that's what we needed to do, was to make the first impression every interaction with every guest, treating them very Special, and with this, we set the we set to change the culture of Air Force Lodging, with better standardization, expectations for service, while at the same time saving valuable resources. And because of this project, General Lisi took me to an event at the Pentagon, and it was a promotion ceremony for someone to three-star general. So almost all of the people in the audience were colonels and mostly generals. And while at the event, I run into two people with two very different approaches to leadership. The first was General Bowles, and you remember General Bowles. He was the general I met at the gym at Randolph, and then at Langley, before Colonel Desmond could introduce me, he said, "Oh yeah, I know Tom," and even went over my career path. And once again, when seeing General Bowles, who General Lizzie knew very well. Was about to introduce me, and General Bowles said, "Hi, Tom. It's great to see you, General Lizzie. I hear that you took him on your staff. A very good idea. He was so gracious, and always made those who are much junior to him seem like they're the most important person in the room." Next, I got to meet General McPeak. Now, General McPeak was the Air Force Chief of Staff, or the top general. In the Air Force, 
Of course, I knew who he was, and this was the first time that I would meet him. General Leasy introduced me with a nice elevator speech of my in-focus 2000 project that would affect the entire Air Force. I remember so vividly that General McPeak looked at me very icily with a look like, why am I talking to this captain and why is this captain even here? He said maybe three words and I quickly realized I should mingle elsewhere. How the most senior leaders interact with members of their teams and organization is truly critical. I'd like to think that I've done that well and am sure that there have been times that I may have been more like General McPeak. I certainly hope not. There have been many interactions with generals and senators and congressmen while in this assignment, and most, truly the majority, always made me feel like I was as important as they were in the moment. When I met General Carnes, the vice chief of staff, in a story a bit later, he really made that point in a way that I think you'll find was unique. Well, this has been a hectic week, and I'm going to close out here. Next week, you'll learn that I'm moving to yet another job while on the air staff, a job that I will have for the remainder of my time there and which I think I made the most impact during my tour. I also make a decision that while frowned on was one that served me very well. I'm horribly behind posting photos and I'm going to try to get some done this week, although I have a feeling it won't be until next week. Have a super week and Kona says hello.